1: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In London on May 22nd, 1846, the great anti-slavery campaigner and orator, Frederick Douglass, who himself was a former slave, stood before a large audience and related to them the reasons why he was there. Why do I not confine my efforts to the United States? my answer first, that slavery is the common enemy of mankind, and it should be made acquainted with its abominable character. Slavery is a system of wrong, so blinding to all around, so hardening to the heart, so corrupting to the morals, so deleterious to religion, so sapping to all the principles of justice in its immediate vicinity, that the community surrounding it lacks the moral stamina necessary to its removal. It is a system of such gigantic evils, so strong, so overwhelming in its power that no one nation is equal to its removal. I want the slaveholder surrounded by a wall of anti-slavery fire so that he may see the condemnation of himself and his system glaring down in letters of light. I want him to feel that he has no sympathy in England, Scotland and Ireland and he has none in Canada, none in Mexico, none among the poor wild Indians. So today on American History 2 we'll be exploring the fascinating who, what, and why, of transatlantic anti-slavery campaigns in the mid-19th century.
2: Hello and uh, welcome to episode 29 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and, as usual, I'm joined by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Welcome. Hello, Mark, and hello
1: to everyone listening. Uh, It's kind of interesting, this episode is something of a kind of a turn to the roots of the podcast, because if you remember back in those dim and distant days when we started, uh, it was intended to parallel the American history course. You know, we were both teaching at the University of Edinburgh, and the very first topic was slavery in colonial North America. And, you know, re-listening that episode, it seems all a bit rough and ready uh, I can't kind, listen to it now. <laughs> kind of like our kind of like, you know, experiments with recording from different locations around the UK at the moment. Uh, but today we actually return to that kind of the very complex and harrowing topic of slavery and looking at transatlantic efforts to abolish the institution of slavery in the United States. And in order to do this, uh, we are joined by our expert guest, uh, Matt Griffin of University College London. Welcome, Matt.
0: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on.
2: So Matt, before we get started, uh, could you do kind of the, the usual thing and tell us a, a little bit about the, the nature of your PhD research?
0: Sure, yeah. So um, my PhD project looks at the political debate surrounding slavery and race in the decades before the American Civil War. So mainly the 1840s and the 1850s. And uh, my interest in transatlantic slave anti-slavery in particular comes from uh, my MA dissertation at the University of Manchester. Uh, which I wrote about um, the British abolitionist and reformer George Thompson. Uh, and I'm currently trying to turn this into a a journal article. Um, so Thompson was one of the central figures in these transatlantic uh, networks we're going to be talking about uh, a bit later today. And he was involved in a huge amount of important uh, social movements and reform causes in the mid-19th century, uh, particularly the abolition of slavery in the uh, US and... Through this activism, he forged close relationships with uh, loads of radical abolitionists over in the States, uh, particularly William Lloyd Garrison, who was probably the leading anti-slavery radical over there. And uh, so the Thompson-Garrison relationship was a really important one. And uh, it blossomed into what I like to think of as one of the great bromances of the 19th century, (laughs) uh, in the sense that they admired each other so much that they named their sons after one another, for example, that sort of thing. And uh, more specifically, my article, if it ever happens, will uh, be about Thompson's activism in Britain on behalf of the North during the Civil War, when he was one of the central figures trying to prevent the British government from recognising the Confederacy.
1: Fantastic, and we'll we'll come back to these issues of you know Britain's kind of role in American Civil War uh, in a few moments' time. So, in previous podcasts, we've, as I said at the start, we've discussed colonial slavery, and then we've had a couple of podcasts discussing various aspects of the Civil War. But I think it'd be useful for us to outline to listeners, you know, what the situation was with slavery in the United States by the time we get to the eighteen fifties. So, so Matt. Very briefly, what's the extent and importance of slavery in the United States?
0: Sure, well, slavery was a really, really formidable uh, force in the US coming into the 1850s. Um, historians used to think that the closer you got to the Civil War, the less powerful and the less influential and profitable uh, slavery became. But recently, it's become kind of a general, generally accepted thing that um, in the 1840s and the 1850s, slavery was actually becoming more profitable and more influential than it ever had been before. Um, so you had slave-based plantation agriculture forming really the cornerstone and the driving force of the southern economy in this period, particularly in the, the fertile, cotton-rich, deep south states like Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, and it's important to note that it wasn't, actually, it wasn't even uh, just the south. So you had the impo- uh, slavery was extremely important in the economic development of the northern United States, and from in the development of Britain, and indeed pretty much everywhere else in the industrializing world, because it provided the factories and the mills with the cheap raw materials that they needed uh, to get ahead in an economic sense. Uh, but also politically speaking, slavery was a really uh, a really formidable force as well. Um, so while the Constitution didn't explicitly mention slavery or slaves, it still provided significant protection for the institution for example, through the, uh, the three-fifths clause, which uh, enabled the southern states to count their slaves as three-fifths of a person, as the name suggests, and uh, even though, of course, they had no voting rights and, indeed, no rights uh, over anything whatsoever. And this gave the southern states a disproportionate amount of power in Congress and enabled them to pass uh, legislation which would protect the, the institution. So in 1850, for example, the Fugitive Slave Clause was strengthened, which meant that any slaves that had run away into the North had to be sent back to their masters in the South by law. And then in 1857, you had the famous uh, Supreme Court ruling in the Dred Scott case, uh, which ruled that blacks could never be citizens of the US under the Constitution. And I think it's kind of indicative of this dominance was the fact that only three out of the 15 pre-Civil War presidents uh, were were never had never owned slaves in their lives. The other 12 had. And many of them continued to own slaves uh, while they were in office. So, basically, the opponents of, institution, of the institution faced a really uphill battle because of its—it uh, was deeply entrenched in American society in this period.
2: And I, f- I find it quite interesting. You said there that the historiography used to think that civil war was getting, uh, sorry, that slavery was becoming less important. And given the fact it's about to be the largely the reason for a civil war, you know, you would seem that seems a bit axiomatic. But <laughs> um, moving on then. Uh, now that we've discussed about the importance of slavery, what about you know, what you're focused on, the opposition to slavery? I mean, how widespread, vocal and influential is it in the United States during this era?
0: Sure. So opposition to slavery came in many forms. Uh, and I would make a distinction between the more moderate anti-slavery ideology and the more radical opponents of slavery who we tend to call abolitionists. Um, so the more widespread version was the more moderate one. Uh, and this came from people who tended to dislike the amount of political power that the slaveholders had achieved in the government. Um, there was kind of a what was called the slave power, people call it a slave power conspiracy now, but basically a lot of people believe that there was this kind of uh, cabal of slaveholders who had seized control of all the high government offices and were enacting legislation, et cetera, just to benefit the institution, which was kind of partially true, but goes a little bit too far. Um but many also thought that slavery was just a bad way of, of kind of controlling a society and an economy. They thought that free labor was a much better way of developing the country's resources. Um, this did not mean, though, that they had any kind of um, humanitarian concern for um, the slaves. Uh, some of them did, like Lincoln, but they most of them wanted to emancipate the slaves gradually rather than immediately, and kind of a central tenet of moderate anti-slavery in this period was that was the idea that we should be getting that Americans should be getting rid of all the blacks after they've been emancipated, basically deporting them to Africa or Central America. Um, so that speaks to the deeply entrenched racial prejudices that underlay this kind of more moderate strand of anti-slavery ideology.
1: Oh, and that was something I was going to interject with. That's the kind of what was referred to, I think, as the the colonization. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Ideology. You know, Liberia was an outcome of that, was it not?
0: Yeah. Well, Liberia was formed. Uh, its capital is Monrovia, of course, and it was formed uh, by uh, colonizationists uh, during the Monroe presidency, uh, as as you say, as an outlet, as kind of a place for these uh, unwanted blacks to 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 be deported to, to be colonized in. Yeah, exactly.
1: So and so, what about the abolitionists uh, themselves? Were they widespread, large numbers of them? Sure. Well, well, they were growing in the 1840s and the 1850s, but they were still
0: in a, a small minority, mostly centred in New England, although not, um, not entirely. Uh, they advocated for immediate government intervention uh, without compensation and without colonisation. Um, and while most of their racial views would be kind of unacceptable to us today, um, they were, for the time, really, really progressive on racial issues. Um, and these two, kind of, these two kind of strands, the radical and the moderate anti-slavery strands, came together to an extent in the, when the, in the mid-1850s, when the Republican Party was formed in 1854 um, as a kind of an alliance. Uh, and they were quite successful, really. They achieved good results even as early as 1856, only two years after they were formed. They they won the free uh, the popular vote in the free states in the northern states, and then of course in 1860 with Lincoln as the head, uh, they won the whole they won the whole thing. So I think this shows that there was some anti-slavery ideology among the people at large because the Republicans were at, at their basis an anti-slavery party, and they were the first mass party to be conceived on this basis. Um, but as I said, this doesn't necessarily mean that they had kind of any kind of moral opposition to slavery, like the radicals did. They were kind of they were more they were more anti slavery than abolitionists, if that makes sense, coming back to the distinction I tried to make earlier. They mm-hmm. were opposed on political and economic grounds rather than necessarily moral or, or religious ones.
1: Okay. So I mean it's pretty well known that you know many of these kind of like, you know, the the more kind of radical American abolitionists, they you know, travel around the world and they give, you know, powerful speeches to to big, big mass audiences. And like we mentioned at the start of the episode, that excerpt from the former slave Frederick Frederick Douglass, who uh, there's some really fantastic recent work. I saw a, uh, a paper recently at a, a conference, a fantastic work mapping uh, yes. all yeah, the speeches. About, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, right. yeah, mapping all the speeches that uh, Frederick Douglass gave in Britain and Ireland. So, I mean, so how... But how popular and powerful, you've talked about, about them within the United States, how popular and powerful were abolitionists within this kind of wider Atlantic, English-speaking world?
0: That's a really good question, and um, I would say it varied. It's a bit of a cop-out, but I would say it varied significantly according to the area that you were in and the audience that you were talking to. Um, so Britain abolished slavery in 1834 in its colonies, and there was kind of a, a really significant anti-slavery strand of public opinion. Um, A lot of historians have argued that being anti-slavery is kind of a formative aspect of British national identity in this period. Um, But again, this doesn't necessarily mean that they identified with every aspect of the radical abolitionist uh, programme or even necessarily cared all that much about America and its slavery. Um, There were people that did really care about what was going on in America, so people who were involved in trying to promote democracy In in Britain, so I'm thinking people like the Chartists and uh, the supporters of the Parliamentary Reform Acts, they wanted to show that uh, democracy could be a functioning social system, and uh, the American experiment in republican democracy was a really important part of that. And of course, such a profoundly undemocratic uh, system as slavery was seen as kind of a stain on this otherwise uh, good uh, role model for Britain in the future. Um, but African-Americans, as you said, African-Americans like Douglas were really important in popularising specifically American anti-slavery in Britain. Because um, while the majority of Britons were still racist, I mean, we still call them racist today, of course. Uh, I still think that African-Americans brought a kind of authenticity and an immediacy to their stories about American slavery that white abolitionists uh, simply just couldn't provide because they hadn't had the experience. Um so these abolitionists, as you say, want some very, very extensive lecture tours. Um, I recommend everyone to go to Hannah Rose Murray's website, Frederick Douglass in Britain, and look at the maps she's got there, a Google map with kind of points of every uh, town in which Douglass spoke. It's really kind of striking to see the lens uh, to which he went to kind of create this anti-slavery sentiment and to kind of harness it uh, against America, American slavery uh, as well as just slavery, it's just against slavery in the British colonies. And I think it's really plausible that when these Britons in these diverse locations heard these eloquent, intel- intelligent black uh, Americans, uh, like Douglas and like the novelist Williams Wel- William Wells Brown and others, uh, that this kind of forced them to reconsider some of their own racial prejudices and kind of really focus their attention on the injustice of slavery.
2: Okay, great. I I was just wondering, how much does uh, the sort of British playing up of anti-slavery and hosting, you know, speakers such as Douglas, how much does this play into the British desire to see themselves as superior uh, to Americans? Um, I was just wondering if you could comment on that idea.
0: I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely something something in that. I think a lot of uh, British commentators did kind of draw comparisons between their kind of righteousness, um, and it was quite a strong religious element. Their righteousness in abolishing this evil institution in the in the Caribbean, where all their, uh, most of their colonies were, and the American kind of Americans' attitude of supporting or at least maintaining the institution. Um, so yeah, I think I think you're probably right with that. That there was this kind of air of superiority
1: about uh, British reformers.
2: It's not like the British at all, were not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, we've met, we keep coming back back to Douglas, I think, you know, just because he's a useful kind of like point of reference, as, as he, he's one of the most famous and prominent of the abolitionists. And I mean, he not just because of his abolitionism, but his commitments to equality and freedom in various spheres, women's rights, Irish home rule, anti-imperialism, all these kind of things. So before we get to looking at the outbreak of the Civil War, who exactly are the abolitionists? And... And how diverse are they? Or are, do they come from a very narrow part of American society, Think of American abolitionists? Well, in terms of their backgrounds, they were a really diverse group, actually.
0: They, some, some came from rich backgrounds, some came from more moderate, uh, had more moderate upbringings. So you had people like uh, Wendell Phillips, who was one of the most eloquent and most famous uh, abolitionist orators, and he came from one of the most wealthy, Uh, families in Boston Uh, but then you had Garrison William Lloyd Garrison he came from a much more poorer household and he had a poor bringing with little formal education and um, in terms of their gender makeup as well the abolitionists were a really remarkable group There was a lot of women uh, involved in the anti-slavery movement even at the kind of even the inner circle of the anti-slavery movement integrated uh, a lot of uh, female reformers And then, of course, you had the African-Americans, most of whom were former slaves, but not all of them. Um, And these African-Americans kind of didn't necessarily strictly stick to the groups that the white abolitionists had created. They kind of negotiated skillfully in between them. And this allowed them to be influential even when white abolitionism was not necessarily at its height because its groups were kind of warring a little bit. So, yeah, I think, yeah, they were really diverse. Yeah.
2: Okay, so, I mean, they're obviously a a diverse bunch then, but are they united by, like, sort of any core principles? Um, Or is it it just, you know, let's get rid of slavery as the one thing that that keeps them bound together?
0: Um, Well, as you say, they were were definitely held together by the belief that slavery was an evil and that it had to be immediately uh, eradicated rather than gradually. Um, But, as you suggest, they were significant tactical... Uh, disputes about how this could be achieved. And this drove a significant wedge in between two, what I would characterize as two strands of the abolitionism, uh, abolitionism in this period. So there was one strand, which was political abolitionists. And they thought that organizing radical political groups was the most effective way to combat the influence of slavery. And they thought that the constitution was at its heart, an anti-slavery document and could be used in the future as an anti-slavery tool, and this led a fair chunk of them to uh, embrace the Republican Party when it was founded in the mid-1850s. But then on the other side, you had the most radical of the radicals, uh, who historians call the disunionists, and they rejected formal politics completely, and they believed it to be irredeemably corrupted by, by slavery, uh, they thought that the only way to remove slavery and its influence was to dissolve the union, to split it up. Um, so William Lloyd Garrison, who was the leading disunionist, um, famously burned a copy of the Constitution in on the, on the 4th of July uh, 1854, denouncing it as kind of a contract with slaveholders um, and that sort of thing. And he and his followers uh, focused instead on changing public opinion rather than influencing politics in any formal sense. Um, They believed that the public voice was a force that could kind of transcend um, formal politics in a way. And this is where the transatlantic dimension really came into its own because they thought that if foreign voices could be mobilised, then they could make the American public feel ashamed of their society and its slavery. Um, So Douglas spoke in that vignette you used at the start of creating a wall of anti-slavery fire is the phrase he used and others spoke about creating a moral cordon around the united states and the transatlantic dimension of course was really really pivotal in this
1: so you've mentioned at the start you kind of did your kind of master's dissertation on on george thompson who in the notes for the, for this episode you describe as one of the great unheralded reformers of 19th century century britain so so who who was george thompson uh, and how did and how did he come to abolitionism as a cause sure
0: um, so he was, he was uh, born in Liverpool in 1804 and his father worked on a slaveholding vessel. So he was made aware of the injustices of slavery from a very young age. Um, the first reform cause of many that he got involved in was the were the debates around the abolition of British colonial slavery in the early 1830s. He was hired as a lecturer for the from, for the Agency Committee, as it was called, which was a really radical group which advocated for immediate emancipation uh, of the slaves in the West Indies without compensation for the slaveholders. And then really importantly, in 1832, he met Garrison in Scotland and the two immediately struck up a really close relationship. They were both advocates of immediate abolition without compensation, without colonisation and they believed that slavery was not just an economic and a political wrong, but also a moral and a religious one. Um, and it's said that when Garrison was asked by uh, a British abolitionist how Britain could best help the American abolitionist movement, he said he said to have answered that the best they, thing they could do was to give him George Thompson. And <laughs> because of this close relationship, they, uh, Garr- Garrison invited Thompson to visit the U.S., in 1834 and 1835. Uh, but unfortunately, things did not go quite as planned. Uh, Thompson was virulently denounced uh, everywhere he went as a foreign incendiary trying to stir things up in this country. Um, and he was the subject of violent attacks by angry mobs, which caused him to flee for his life back to Britain in 1835. Um, but it wasn't a total washout because Thompson did convert a number of people with his kind of charismatic lecturing style and his convictions and a lot of these people would go on to play important roles in the transatlantic abolitionist movement going forward um and when he was back in britain he didn't stop this is important he didn't stop trying to agitate against american slavery in fact he was the, mo- the leading british disunionist uh between the 1830s and the civil war um, he took part in the world's anti-slavery conference in the, in 1840 in london and he continued to have significant correspondence with garrison and his us allies uh, in the 1840s and 50s he lectured in favor of the removal of the corn laws reform of the east india company the peace movement uh, charters and basically there was there wasn't a reform act that he didn't a reform cause that he didn't like
2: okay so i mean you you've outlined one half of the bromance in. um so for those i mean obviously a lot of our listeners will know of william lloyd garrison um but perhaps you could you could explain a wee bit more uh, about the man. Good luck in doing that. In a
0: bit. <laughs> <laughs> Just a minute, William Lloyd Garrison. <laughs> uh, repetition, deviation, or, or whatever, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so... I so like will in
1: if you do one of those things.
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah, so like Thompson, Garrison came from a poor background. Uh, so he served as an apprentice and a columnist for various Massachusetts newspapers earlier in his life. Uh, but he outgrew their moderate anti-slavery sentiment and set up his own radical uh, abolitionist newspaper called The Liberator in 1831, and he remained as its editor until its uh, disbandment in 1865. Um, So in the first ever editorial, uh, he kind of set the tone for his agitation in his life when he wrote, I am in earnest, I will not equivocate, I will not excuse, I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. Um, So this kind of combative approach got him into trouble quite often, uh, including with his fellow anti-slavery advocates who didn't agree necessarily agree with his all of his views that formal politics were irredeemably corrupted by slavery and that the best way to get rid of slavery was to dissolve the Union. Even people like Douglas ended up breaking with him eventually. Um, so basically he wasn't necessarily the most likeable person and didn't have much tolerance uh, for people who disagreed with him. Uh, his outspoken nature got him into trouble quite a lot. And he became a symbol of what more moderate anti-slavery advocates thought was wrong with uh, the radical side of, them, side of things. But he was he was a great propagandist, You have to give him that. And he was just the most prominent and the most passionate uh, radical abolitionist in the United States between the 1830s and the 1860s.
1: And just as a follow up to that, what was the reaction of Pro-slavery advocates to to Garrison because I mean was he held did they point at him and go oh look all abolitionists are like that they're all fire breathing disunionists was he just used as the kind of the archetype of what an abolitionist is like
0: yeah absolutely yeah no no question that's exactly what uh, what they said there was you know cartoons and editorials in southern pro-slavery newspapers that made that point precisely yeah Garrison is was the archetypal anti-slavery advocate and his kind of radical brand of abolitionism was used to kind of smear, I guess, in a way, other more moderate political abolitionists.
1: So it seems there was a bit of a a focus on Britain uh, by, you know, by American abolitionists. So, I mean, why was this the case? Is this purely because of you know the the bonds of the English language, or Britain as a, a powerful uh, international maritime state? What was the reasoning behind this? I think both of those factors were important,
0: but I think probably the most important was the fact that Britain seemed to provide an example that correlated most directly with their own experiences. Uh, so, just like you had Europeans who looked to uh, America for information about democracy and republicanism you had americans who looked to britain for examples of anti-slavery and abolitionist uh, movements you had people like garrison and even more moderate political abolitionists who were really impressed by the abolition of colonial slavery in britain in 1834 and they took it as kind of a model for their own uh, agitation to a certain extent they interpreted uh, garrison this is garrison interpreted british abolition as kind of being caused by this upsurge of righteous public opinion um, that was kind of brought pressure on the political elites to kind of uh, finally complete the the, the act and uh, abolish slavery in 1834.
2: Yeah, so. I was just wondering if um, the the British obviously after they abolished slavery then become the biggest enforcers of of stopping slavery when it still exists, you know, especially around Africa and areas like that. And obviously they're doing that in a military sense. Is that something that any of the abolitionists in America looked at and went, look, we can militarily impose, you know, that like, for example, the South, we can make a way that they won't have slavery. Or does that, nothing that, cut, does that have come up at all?
0: Um, I can't say I've found any direct examples of that. They do praise Britain for for kind of militarily and strictly enforcing the abolition of the slave trade. But I most of these abolitionists were actually um, non-violent, proponents of non-violent ways to abolish slavery. So I'm not sure that British, you know, this kind of militaristic policing of the slave trade would have been used too prominently as an example of how to to move forward. Yeah,
1: that's a good question. And in terms of, you know, abolitionists in the U. Did they encounter problems in the United States as a, as a result of this focus on on Britain and kind of getting their message to to Britain? Did they did they have domestic problems because of that? So, Anglophobia
0: is still a really important uh, part of American life in the decades following the Revolution. Uh, when George Thompson visited the the states for the first time in the mid eighteen thirties, he was regularly denounced as this kind of foreign agitator who was kind of meddling in America's internal affairs and he was kind of presented as kind of agent of the British imperialism and agent of British elites even though in reality he and his allies came into conflict with British elites all the time he, They were no there were no kind of there were no fans of the British political establishment if you want to use that word.
1: So it seems I mean this is a kind of like a trend in America at the time and kind of like you know throughout history there's a uh... I think, you know, at the same time, you have kind of fears of kind of Catholic subversion of the United States, of Masonic subversion of the United States, and then then British Imperial subversion of the United States as well.
0: Yeah, there's definitely
1: a a widespread
0: paranoia about a range of things. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Cool. so I mean, historians of nineteenth-century Britain who are listening to this, and I'm sure there are hordes of them, uh, will be well aware that there were, you know, a lot of domestic reform movements taking place in Britain at roughly the same time as all this is going on. You know, you've got the Reform Acts, all about political representation, women's rights, Chartism, um, and so on. I mean, were there? Were there any intersections between abolitionism and these other reform movements? You know, for example, we mentioned earlier about Douglass' support for Irish Home Rule. Um, Did positions like these cause problems for the abolitionists?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, there were definitely intersections between uh, these kind of diverse causes. One of the abolitionists' favourite mottos was, our country is the world, our countrymen are all mankind. Which appeared on the masthead of every edition of Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, and was repeated numerous times by Thompson and various other radical abolitionists. Um, so this shows their focus on mobilizing foreign public opinion, but it also shows their interest and involvement in a wide variety of causes. And all those that you mentioned, uh, parliamentary reform charters and women's rights, home rule, those were all those all drew strong support from the abolitionist movement. So basically the fight against slavery was kind of was one part. It was a really important part, but it was one part of a broader worldwide fight for for liberty and and freedom. Um, So, But it also went beyond, I mean, we talked about the focus on Britain, but it also went beyond British issues. So you had abolitionists supporting the struggles of these romantic nationalists in wider Europe. So people like Louis uh, Lajos Kossuth and uh, Guy Baldi and Mazzini in Italy. And again, they interpreted these struggles as kind of a global movement for more freedom and more liberty. Um, but as you say, the, this, this approach was not without problems. And in a way, it divided uh, the abolitionist movement between the more moderate and the radical factions again. Um, so, for example, the case of women's rights, um, while Garrison and the uh, his disunionist supporters were really strong advocates of women's rights. This was not necessarily the case for the more moderate strand of the anti-slavery movement. And there was a really big kind of kerfuffle at the World's Convention in 1840 about whether women should be allowed to sit on the convention floor as delegates. Uh, Garrison and Thompson and all these people were saying, of course, just let them sit there and, and do their thing. We have them in our societies and they're great. But you had uh, a lot of British people and a lot of more moderate people in the U.S., who were dead set against the idea, and uh, basically there was a vote, and the anti-women uh, party, if you like, won out. And uh, Garrison uh, famously sat up with uh, the women on the gallery rather than uh, in the on the floor with the rest of the delegates.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's quite interesting that uh you've you've got you know anti slavery campaigners splitting over women's rights back then and then come the early twentieth century you can have the women's suffrage movement <laughs> splitting over African American yeah. rights. So yeah. you know all these divisions. But Malcolm, I think
1: you have a question. So I think we should you know turn now to let's you know talk a little bit about the about the civil war itself. Now, on my bookshelf, I have to admit, thumbed through and read in part, but not read in full uh, I've got Amanda Foreman's like monumental book, <laughs> The World on Fire, which is all about kind of Britain's role in the Civil War. And it's a gigantic volume. Uh going back to kind of, very general at first, what role does Britain play in the American Civil War? Sure. So foreign policy was a really important aspect of the Civil War.
0: And that's a point in which that book foreman book makes makes really well. So a large part of the war strategy of the South was to gain recognition from European governments of their legitimacy as a kind of independent state. Um, they focused particularly on Britain and France in trying to in trying to do this. Um, so their initial strategy was that but uh, if they embargoed the cotton that they produced, then they could kind of force uh, Britain into recognising them to avoid all the unemployment and the kind of starvation that would ensue in the Northwest cotton mills as a result of the embargo. Um, but this really wasn't that great a strategy. Um, however, there were a number of diplomatic mistakes by the Lincoln administration that made British intervention a really serious possibility in 1861 and 1862. Um, and we should also bear in mind that British uh, elites, people like the prime minister, Lord Palmerston, uh, Kind of secretly and sometimes openly wanted the American experiment to fail because they didn't want more democracy in their country. They were opposed to these people like who wanted parliamentary reform, obviously the Chartists. And Palmerston famously famously said that when you put power in the hands of the masses, the scum of the community rises to the surface. Uh, so I think you can see where he's going
1: with that. Still rather bitter over the Battle of Yorktown, then. <laughs> yeah. Possibly, yeah. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, in Civil War Diplomacy, I'm right in thinking, it's kind of a... And not to take away from the fact that Amanda Foreman has written this huge book on British diplomacy, but to me, like my understanding of it is that British diplomacy is a bit of a red herring in terms of how the Civil War is an outcome. Like, the British basically, they flirt with the South for a while while it looks like the South could win. Um, but as soon as Antietam happens and momentum changes, the Battle of Antietam, the, the British reconcile themselves to, let, we're not going to give you ships and all that, and Drinking cotton is obviously the the worst strategy anyone ever conceived, how about (laughs) we piss off the people we want to help us. Uh, But sorry, that's me regurgitating a thesis from an undergraduate essay I did. But anyway, so I mean, American cotton then, produced by slaves, was vital to the the British cloth industry. I mean, did abolitionists come under attack from, from wealthy mill owners or ordinary working people whose jobs were under threat because of a cotton famine? Um, I mean, i have read that workers in Lancashire and Yorkshire pledged money and su- support to these abolitionist causes despite the threat of the war to their livelihoods. I mean, is this correct?
0: Yeah, so there's there's a lot of debate among historians about British public opinion, of course. Uh, but I, I happen to think that it was a really important part of why Britain didn't intervene in the Confederacy uh, and support the Confederacy. So the workers in Lancashire that you uh, just mentioned were really powerful examples. Uh, there's men and women, as you mentioned, have been pounded for the first few years of the war because of the cotton embargo. So there was mass unemployment, starvation, and um, really kind of the really terrible situation up there in the Northwest. Um, and there were riots, and there was some pro-Confederate sentiment in the hardest-hit towns, places like Staley Bridge, Bolton, those sorts of places. Uh, but what I find really astounding, really, is how little pro-Confederate sentiment there was in kind of comparison with the severity of the situation they found themselves in. Actually, on the contrary, there was a lot of pro-Northern sentiment. There was a mass meeting in Manchester on New Year's Eve in uh, 1862, uh, which was a day before the emancipation came into effect. And the aim of the meeting was to draft a resolution from uh, British workers congratulating Lincoln on emancipating the slaves. And thousands and thousands of people turned up to this. They spent their New Year's Eve in the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, standing up in a meeting just congratulate uh, a foreign leader on emancipating slaves in a foreign country um, and even now today you can see a statue in Manchester uh, which was uh, engraved with the both the resolution and Lincoln's famous reply to them Um so as a Mancunian and as kind of a historian of anti-slavery in the Civil War that's I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's fantastic that that kind of that you know, that Your know, record in, in stone, in terms of a statue, still exists in Manchester today.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I was just wondering, I mean, how, how foreign did they think the North was? Because, I mean, obviously, during the Civil War, you've got this mass immigration still happening to America and almost exclusively to the North. So, does that create a kinship?
1: Um,
0: I think to, to a certain extent, uh, the one historian has argued that British people basically hated both sides. Uh, because they kind of saw the the North as kind of a, as they, like, like you said, Malcolm, they were kind of probably still bitter about the Battle of Yorktown uh, and that sort of thing. You know, there's still kind of a hangover from the anti-American sentiment uh, because of that and the War of 1812. Um, but I think the slavery aspect was really the tipping point. So British people were generally anti-slavery. And once it became clear that uh, the ab- abolition of slavery was uh, a war aim of the Lincoln administration, then they really were empowered to come out in favour of the North.
1: And so, what about kind of, what about the abolitionists themselves after the Civil War actually breaks out? I mean, you mentioned before, you know, people like uh, Garrison. You know, the disunionists wanted to break up the Union between between North and South. So, how did they react when the South actually goes ahead and splits up the Union? Sure. Well, you'd have thought that they'd be really happy about it, right? But actually.
0: American radical abolitionists and disunionists uh, expressed their support for the North quite strongly almost as soon as secession happens. Um, so you had the weird image of people like Garrison standing under an American flag a few days after secession when just seven years earlier they'd been burning the Constitution and talking about how the whole of America was kind of corrupted irredeemably by the stain by the stain of slavery. And it's pretty much the same story in Britain you had uh, people like thompson the strongest supporters of garrison uh, also proclaiming support for the north but it was uh, cr- it's also crucial to think about the exceptions to these rules so in britain you had plenty of people who were completely dumbfounded by garrison's newfound love for america and its armies and the north and the lincoln administration and they uh, they split with garrison over this they thought that he was uh taking on a patriotism which did not fit in with his ideals. They thought, basically, thought that he'd sold out. Um, and so, one historian, for example, has called it the rupturing of transatlantic abolitionism as a result of these uh, these British abolitionists breaking with their former allies in, in in the North. But as I say, this is not the case for all abolitionists. And this is what my research into Thompson shows: is that a lot of them still. Stayed with Garrison and his support of the North despite the apparent inconsistencies. Um, so, basically, just quickly, they defended the inconsistency by saying that uh, disunionism was always a political tactic rather than it was kind of a means to an end rather than an end in itself. So, they supported breaking up the Union when they thought it was the best uh, way to abolish slavery. But when the war broke out, this calculation had changed. So they thought the public opinion had been radicalised by secession. They thought the public were now ready to support immediate emancipation. And because of their belief in the power of public opinion as kind of this all-pervading political force, they thought it was only a matter of time until the Lincoln administration caught up and professed its support for emancipation as well. So basically they thought that the Civil War was a vehicle to achieve uh, anti-slavery, sorry, to achieve abolition, uh, and that's really the main reason why they ended up supporting it.
2: So um, you've obviously outlined then that there was there was this ideological problem going on, but I mean, surely the whole kind of rupturing of the of normal political behaviour and everything created a lot of new opportunities for the abolitionists themselves.
0: Sure, I mean, a lot of historians talk about how the abolitionists sold out, basically their ideals, and became just like any other supporters of the North. I really don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, And in many ways, it was actually the the Lincoln administration and the more moderates who came more towards the more radical uh, ideology, if you like, uh, both in the sense of advocating for immediate emancipation, but also in the sense that they thought it was really important that foreign voices were mobilised, and um, so they actively uh, touted uh, the foreign public opinion Um, to come out in favour of the North, which was a tactic that the abolitionists had been using uh, in an anti-slavery sense for decades up till then. So Lincoln, for example, said in his Gettysburg Address that the Civil War was a trial for this nation or any nation so conceived, and he called the US the last best hope of Earth um, in his second annual message to Congress. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to connect this to the abolitionist's favourite saying of our country is the world, our country men are all mankind. There's this kind of universalist rhetoric from Lincoln that the war mattered to everyone and that it wasn't just necessarily a national problem. It was a problem that all the world uh, was affected by and that foreign public opinion could really have a strong impact on. And there were loads of great stories about the Lincoln administration. Trying to kind of call foreign celebrities, for want of a better word, to come out in favour of their side. So probably my favourite is a uh, story about Garibaldi. Uh, so basically, the Lincoln administration offered to uh, Garibaldi this position of command in the US Army um, because they thought he would be kind of a, a rallying point for Europeans who weren't sure which side to uh, which side to support in the war, and. As it turns out, nothing came of it because Garibaldi wanted Lincoln and his administration to come out strongly in favour of the abolition of slavery as a war aim, which at this point in 1861 and 1862, Lincoln wasn't prepared to do. Uh, But I still think it's quite a telling example of how the administration was going to kind of unusual lengths to influence public opinion abroad. Um, So this was kind of a golden opportunity for abolitionists to use their long-cherished Ideals and their networks that they 'd created over all these decades of transatlantic agitation to really make a direct impact uh, on the war and one of the most pivotal moments in in american history and so and moreover, the fact that the British public were generally anti slavery meant that the authenticity of the abolitionist message the fact that they'd been Fighting these fights for decades meant that they had the potential to be a particularly powerful actors in gaining British and French and European support in general.
1: And kind of turning, like before we kind of come to our conclusion today, going back to, to George Thompson, how exactly did he try and rally support for the North and kind of what level of success did he achieve during the Civil War? Because he's quite an old man by this point, is he not? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. He was pro- fast approaching 60. Uh, so, an old, man, an old man, by the standards of the by the standards yeah. of I don't want to kind of alienate any <laughs> any people. Yeah, I, I just realised that as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, did what he'd been doing for decades and went on a massive lecturing tour around Britain, stretching from places like Aberdeen and Inverness all the way down to places like Bristol, London, Stroud. These places quite far, and Plymouth even far south of England, and. So off Diaries newspaper reports, he gave an average of about 20 lectures a month between in 1861 and 1862, which is a pretty significant mm. effort, as you say, considering his age and that he'd been kind of afflicted with quite a lot of health issues in the, the years immediately before the war. And he went to not only places where he knew anti-slavery sentiment was strong, like Bristol and uh, Glasgow and those sorts of places, but also to places where pro-Confederate... Uh, Agents were known to have been working and where there was thought to be quite a strong pro-Confederate sentiment, so places like Liverpool and Sheffield. And basically his aim was to get out the message that the war could actually be uh, an anti-slavery vehicle, that it could end in emancipation, and that indeed this was the best way to try and get emancipation in the US. Um, So he rehearsed all these arguments that American public opinion had been radicalised and that uh, it was only a matter of time until the Lincoln administration caught up. And of course, he emphasized that there was no Southerners in the U.S. government anymore. So they had no power to block any of these Mm. these sort of legislation, which seems like a basic point. But it's something that he made time and time again to to British audiences. But I think one of the most important things he did was to facilitate the visits of African-Americans. So we had people like uh, William Andrew Jackson, who was a former slave, and had worked as the coachman of the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. Uh, So he became kind of Jackson. This is became kind of a minor celebrity in Britain because of this high status that he had. He had kind of gossip basically about the Confederate president, which was something that's really appealing uh, to British people who had been following the war in the newspapers. And He drew huge audiences to his speeches. And uh, so Thompson basically gave him a place to stay gave him food, showed him around, um, accompanied him to his first few lectures, it gave him sort of a sounding board for his ideas and what he thought would work with British audiences. Um, so while that's not as direct an, an influence as the lecture tour, I still think it was really important because, as I said before, these African-Americans brought an authenticity and a kind of a, a um, you know, they, they they could be believed because the, they'd lived through these experiences. Um as to his success, it's it's kind of, of course, it's difficult to say for sure, but I've read newspaper reports of his uh, reaction to his speeches, and it seemed to me that he had quite a significant amount of success. You had audiences, even in places where you wouldn't normally expect a positive reaction to someone like Thompson, who seemed to, uh, you know, receive the messages that he sent out, and, uh, you know, there's all these uh, statements such as there was... Huge rounds of applause and thousands of cheers and all the sorts of exaggeration you get in 19th century newspapers. Um, And also there were kind of letters written by audience members in local newspapers the next day saying how wonderful they thought the lecture had been and all that sort of thing. So while it's difficult to kind of quantify his impact, I think um, in terms of kind of these newspaper sources and what people were saying qualitatively, um, it seemed that he had quite a lot of success. Um, and then Americans certainly thought he was, he was successful and important because um, when he came to the US for the last time in the 1860s, he was given a rapturous reception pretty much everywhere he went. He was received by the governor of Massachusetts as soon as he stepped off the boat. And then he was invited to speak in front of Congress and he was given a kind of a personal audience with Lincoln and so then he also took part in this kind of ceremonial raising of the flag in Fort Sumter. So this was kind of this was kind of to mark the the victory of the Union over the Confederacy. Thompson and Garrison both gave kind of a tug on the pole, and then afterwards they walked through the streets of Charleston meeting freed slaves and all that sort of thing. So he was given a really kind of a prominent role in the celebrations of Union victory. I think this speaks again to the recognition of more moderate Americans of the importance of foreign public opinion and of Thompson's role in kind of creating a more positive sentiment among Britons for for America and for sorry for the North in particular. And if you contrast it with his first visit, where he was chased out of town by bloodthirsty mobs, <laughs> really is kind of striking to see how far America came in these decades.
2: It's quite the story arc. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, just, kind of, just one kind of concluding, very big question for, for you, Matt. Yeah. You know, civil War comes to an end. Slavery is abolished. However, obviously, there's the problematic story of the decades after with Reconstruction and then America's ongoing story of civil rights and such like. But what do you see as the contribution of abolitionists to the ending of slavery in the United States? Did they actually make a significant contribution? Or really, was it bigger forces at work? Well,
0: I don't think... A lot of abolitionists, as you can imagine, were self-congratulatory after emancipation. Thompson said it was a triumph of Garrisonian abolitionism, and I really wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, I think they're a really interesting group, and that they, they woke up a lot of people in the North to the evils of slavery, partially because they were so controversial. You know, they created kind of a media furore around their actions and they forced people to engage with them. They forced even more moderate people and and, and pro-slavery advocates to answer their questions and to kind of talk against them. And I think this was a valuable contribution in the sense that it brought the evils of slavery at the forefront of the conversation in the pre-war period, uh, where it might not have been if it were just more moderate voices talking about how we could kind of oh conciliate with slaveholders and we should send all blacks to Liberia and all that sort of thing, so they were good propagandists, and uh they kind of brought issues forward that wouldn't always have necessarily have been talked about as much, but I wouldn't give them whole credit for abolishing slavery by any means There's all sorts of complex forces and important people. Uh, that didn't belong to the abolitionist movement that contributed significantly to to that,
2: and they did such a great job of scaring the crap out of southerners that brought on the Civil War. <laughs> Pretty
0: much, yeah. That's, that's that's not to be sniffed at. Yeah, yeah.
2: That, that's my intellectual input. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Matt, I think we'll round up there. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on. That's really been enlightening for myself, and I- I'm sure it's going to be for the audience. Uh, Malcolm, thank you as always. No, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Matt. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I knew nothing about George
1: Thompson uh, before recording this. I now feel much better equipped to talk about nineteenth-century uh, American abolitionism. If I have to teach it again at any point in the future, that's great. Yeah. That's
0: great.
2: Yeah, the whole time I've been wondering if the reason that George Thompson has been forgotten is because his name is George Thompson. But, <laughs> that's well, kind on, of a forgettable that, name, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's so that, really thought. Not not something like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So, uh, thanks again, listener, and uh, we'll see you again next month. Bye bye. Goodbye.
3: My country is of the stronghold of slavery. Of the I sing. Land where my fathers died. Where. From every mountain side, thy deeds shall ring. Our Father's God, to thee, Author of liberty, to Thee we sing. holy freedom's right protect us by thy might great God our King It comes the joyful day when tyranny's proud sway stern as the Hurled and freedom's flag unfurled shall wave throughout the world every slave. Say goodbye.